0: Hey everyone, I'm Haley Bloom-Peterson, and this is Our Stories, Our Health. We're here to share your stories, your experiences with our so-called healthcare system, to shed some light on the ways in which it fails us, the ways others profit off of us, to show you that you are not the only one who can't figure this whole thing out. We all have stories, and in telling those stories, we become the vehicle for wholesale change. One note, we recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago, so some things have changed due to the spread of COVID-19. The legislature, which we'll talk a little bit about, is no longer meeting as it normally does during the session, and we're gonna be focusing more on coronavirus in the coming weeks. Welcome to the first full-length episode of the podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Our Stories, Our Health founder and executive director, Erin Murphy. Erin is a registered nurse, served in the Minnesota House of Representatives for 12 years, including being the majority leader, and she ran for governor in 2018. We first met a little over two years ago when I was in graduate school and interning in her legislative office, and our paths have been crossing in numerous ways ever since. Last summer, she pitched an idea to me. She said, I want to start an organization with the goal of changing the healthcare debate. Will you help me get this started? I'll just say I couldn't sign on fast enough. After the break, Erin and I talk about how this organization came to be, some of the things we've been hearing since we launched, and some of what you can expect from us in the coming months. Aaron, Thanks for joining me in my house. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Haley. Let's just jump right in. So where did you first get the idea to start a narrative-based
1: organization that focuses on healthcare? care? The idea really came from my experience serving in uh, the Minnesota House and watching the power of individual stories on the thinking of elected officials. And, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time uh, first as a nurse and you know working for a union but in elected office and the thing that holds us together um, are shared values and those are often expressed in stories where we can see in each other uh, something that we share and uh, they're powerful. Uh, they're powerful uh, in the environment where we want to make change and the uh, Narrative that is coming out of the healthcare debate right now isn't very much about people anymore. It's a lot about the system. Uh, it's a lot about uh, the functioning of government. Uh, it is a lot about who's making money and who's not making money. Uh, but we don't talk very much about the human impact of a system that isn't really built for us anymore. And I think if we want min- if we want Minnesotans to join us uh, in a real way. To make the change that i think we need to make then we need to connect with them again around uh, their own experiences and how they look very much like the experiences of their friends and neighbors and family and when we see that i think we can move uh, people to a place of demanding something more than what we have right now
0: so the first thing when i became an intern in aaron's legislative office, the first thing she asked me to do. And I remember you called me randomly. You were on the road somewhere and you just said, Hey, I want you to look into something that has to do with emergency insulin programs. Just figure out kind of what's out there. So I start this research. I'm Googling emergency insulin, insulin access. I'm searching all over the American Diabetes Association website and I can't find anything. There's nothing, no state, program, no federal program, nothing to get people insulin if they are in dire need of it. Um, And this was before you introduced the first version of the emergency insulin bill. Um, And then I remember about a year later, Representative Mike Howard had taken on this bill and, you know, built it up a little bit more. It was much more robust. And by that time, you Google emergency insulin and you see all sorts of news stories um, because Nicole Smith-Holt, who came to us or came to you first to write this bill or work on this bill, she had told her story everywhere. She was on you know, local news programs. She was in national news programs. She's now been to the State of the Union address. She got that story out. And now you go to the, the, the legislature and when she testifies, she usually starts by saying something like, well, you all know my story. Because she's told it so many times. <laughs> But that it was wild in just the span of a year to yeah. be able to go
1: from nothing to just countless hits. It is proof of what's possible. So I I want to give a shout out to our friend uh, Nicole Smith Holt, uh, who you know I, I sometimes think our stories, our health should be um, dedicated to her. Um, she is a an honorary board member of our organization, but has shown us. Uh, with her very life, uh, the power of a story and how you can make change possible by sharing a story. And she has given so much of herself and so has her husband James over to making sure that people have access to affordable insulin
0: So our stories are our health. We launched this organization almost exactly six months ago. We are approaching our half year birthday or half birthday. I think a cake is in our future. I think a half a cake at least. <laughs> um, and we started out, we've, we've learned a lot in these six months. But on just in a general sense, what is it that you hope we accomplish in the near-term and the far-term, what, what exactly are we doing with this organization?
1: We have learned so much in six months, and I think the most powerful lesson for me uh, is the demonstration through the stories that people are sharing with us that the primary issue is not access to care. People, people can go to a doctor or a nurse practitioner, um, but getting the actual care that they need um, in a way that they can actually afford it with the coverage that they have is a very significant barrier for people who are really sick. And we have heard, you and I, have heard countless stories now about a bureaucracy that is meant to deny care. It is, uh, in human terms, much more uh, much more damaged than I realized. And it is has uh, raised, uh, for me, the pressure um, to actually make change because as someone who's cared for a loved one uh, who's going through a a significant disease uh, to have to fight the bureaucracy along with the condition is just unacceptable and you and I have heard now too many stories of people who are dealing with both their own sickness uh, the the sickness of a loved one and a bureaucracy that uh, gets in the way. Of treatment on the regular and that's just ridiculous so i i i think that you know we we often talk about the the notion that uh, minnesotans care about each other and i see that uh, in our day-to-day existence in my work with people all across the state and if more minnesotans understand uh, the experiences of their neighbors and friends of their fellow minnesotans I think they'll join us in pushing Mm -hmm. for the change that we need, and that's what we're trying to accomplish. So 10
0: years ago, the Affordable Care Act passed, and it expanded insurance coverage to millions of Americans. But if we fast forward then to where we are now, we are still looking at huge numbers of people that are uninsured and even more people that can't get the care that they need. So as we look to the debate, especially among the presidential primary candidates, which there are now really only two, um, what kind of problems do you see with focusing on making changes to the system that we already have versus complete overhaul of the system? The
1: worry that I have about Vice President Biden's proposal and some of the other candidates' proposals that just build upon what we already have is that they're largely talking about expanding coverage. And when we think about our healthcare system, and if you used a metaphor like a bus, um, and we invite more people onto the bus, which we should. I think everybody should have coverage, including people who are undocumented. I think you know it's a human right, and so if we embrace it as a human right, then everybody should have access to care. But if what we do is invite everybody onto the bus as it is right now, um, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna serve us because the bus itself is breaking down. And it's because uh, the bus has been overtaken by an industry that is way more interested in propelling itself and in doing so uh, using tools to deny people care when they need it. Um, And that can't be the hallmark of a healthcare system in any country and especially in America. So I worry a lot about uh, a measured approach like that that sounds not too scary uh, to Americans, but isn't ambitious enough to really solve the problem. I like that idea of
0: the bus. Yeah, so
1: it's a good visual. We want everybody on the bus for sure, but we want the bus to work for us.
0: So one of the things that we talk about in our organization a lot is the idea of wholesale change. What does that mean to you? Like, where where did that phrase come from in sort of your vernacular?
1: Well, as I was talking about the bus. Um, I think in my now decades worth of work in health policy, we often talk about reforming the system, and you know we have we have expanded and created Minnesota Care, so more people had access to coverage back in the early nineteen nineties, and with that came uh, a very robust set of regulatory policies to make the industry conform better to the values that we share in Minnesota about everybody having access to care when they need it. Most of that regulatory framework fell away in the years that followed the passage of Minnesota care. And really what we're left with is a funding mechanism and a coverage program, which are important, but um, it has allowed the industry to continue to grow uh, along in the way that it needs to and wants to in a competitive marketplace um, that doesn't have an obligation uh, to make sure everybody has access to good care. No one has that obligation right now, and because no one has that obligation, it's it's not a real promise. Uh, I don't think that we can pass enough laws or regulations right now to fix what's broken in today's healthcare marketplace. I think it has become a profit-driven model, and it needs to be replaced with something that is again embedded in the values of Minnesotans, which is if you're sick, you should get care. Uh, I don't think we can fix uh, enough about what is broken in the system. I think we need to change it, we need to replace it. And I, I with you and others, um, came to the conclusion that one way to describe that is wholesale change. Um, from the bottom up, we need to make change um, and it won't work to put Band-Aids on What's broken anymore? We got to replace it.
0: Well, there's something this reminds me of um, we've talked to Representative Elise Van quite a bit. Um, She's a physician and she's in the house and she's doing a lot of awesome work. But one of the things that I like that she says is the system is not broken. It is actually working just fine. It's working for that person driving the bus that is there to make a profit, which is why the wholesale change is so necessary. We need to change everything in order to make it work for us.
1: Elise Mann is, uh, of course, uh, fired up about this because of her own experience taking care of people in hospitals in Minnesota. Uh, and I think in her brief tenure in the Minnesota House, she has you know, seen how the value of putting together something that represents a path to the wholesale change we need is critically important. We have to show Minnesotans that what we're talking about is something that we can actually build and deliver upon so that they have access to care. And if we can't show that um, in more ways than just words on paper, uh, I think they're gonna be reluctant to support it because it's so important that they have access to care.
0: As an organization, we are asking Minnesotans to share their stories with us. Now, healthcare stories can be a little bit gross They can be a little bit personal. They can be sometimes scary or difficult to talk about, Um, but we think they're so, so important to this debate. Um, But because we're asking people to share their stories, I thought we could share a bit of our own stories and how we got to this work and um, you know reasons why we're excited to come and meet you and listen to you, you being the listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to share a story? I can share a story. I'll just start off by saying that everything worked out in the end, but I did have to find my way through the bureaucratic maze that is our healthcare system, all to get a very simple refill on a prescription. Like many people, I get my health insurance through my work, and that necessitated a shift in insurance plans when we launched our stories. Um, I take this medication daily and have for a few years. So as soon as we got that new insurance coverage, I made an appointment with my with a primary care physician, got in to see her and left with a, a new prescription being sent to a pharmacy near my house. When I went to that pharmacy, I kind of felt like something was going to go wrong, which is really not what you should be feeling when you go to the pharmacy. Um, and it turns out that the pharmacy doesn't actually take my insurance, but they didn't call me, didn't let me know or anything until I got there. So on my way back to my car, I called another pharmacy who said they would call the first, get the prescription faxed over, and fill it. When I hadn't heard from the second pharmacy in a week or so that the prescription was ready, I called them. Turns out, never got it because they they called the first pharmacy and they didn't have any record of my prescription, probably because they never actually filled it. So I called my doctor, asked them to send the prescription to the clinic pharmacy, Get a call back a couple minutes later, letting me know that the clinic pharmacies are going to be closing. And did I actually want it sent there? Um, I figured as long as it's in the building, I'd be able to get the prescription. So I, like, I told them just do it, and um, finally get the get a call that that prescription is ready, and I'm able to take get my new prescription on the same day that I took my last pill of my old prescription. So
1: it was quite a process. It was you uh, you surprised me when you told me this story because it took a, such a long time. Um, it was like three weeks and multiple stops and multiple places. And I know how frustrated I am when, you know, you time is an issue for all of us, right? And I'm I'm willing to put the time in to, you know, see a provider, you know, run to another place, get my prescription filled. I'm I, I get that, you know, that's that's my job. But then it should work. And if you have to go to that many places and make that many calls. Um, it's not working. right? It reminded
0: me of, you know, the old MasterCard commercials of, you know, where they would, they would list something like trip to Mexico. So many dollars stay at a fun resort. So many dollars, like time spent with your family priceless, that kind of a thing. It was just like 8,000 calls to the pharmacy, (laughs) (laughs) three trips to the doctor time spent. Why did I spend that much time? (laughs)
1: That's exactly (laughs) right. I have a, I, funny system a funny system story Um, and it it just always has stood out for me and it's not that old I was um, at uh, the oral surgeon um, because I had to have a wisdom tooth removed and uh, you know I was a surgical nurse so surgical procedures are pretty familiar to me so I you know I'm always interested in in participating and understanding what they're going to do so I was in the room I was in the chair um, I was already, I already had my IV in, you know, and the dentist came in, the oral surgeon and asked me a few questions to get ready. And then he said, Oh, before we begin, can you write a check for your procedure? And <laughs> I, you know, that movement between I am someone in your care and I am a customer was jarring for me. And I thought, what would happen if I didn't have my checkbook with me? What would happen if I, you know, would they just pull the IV out and say, come back another day? I, it was just incredibly jarring to me that, the very close proximity between I'm going to provide you your care, but you know you gotta pay me first. Um, and and for instance, had something gone wrong, would I get a refund? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah.
1: I doubt it, but Right.
0: I also, you know, it, it feels dirty, like that felt kind of tricky to do it that way. And it almost surprises me that he didn't wait until after the drugs were coursing through your veins. <laughs> you know, just yeah.
1: like add another zero on maybe. <laughs> Gratefully I had a good oral surgeon, so it wasn't unscrupulous, but the practice uh was a really fine reminder of uh the the, the Weirdness of care delivery and payment and how unpredictable it is. Sometimes you never get a bill. Sometimes you get a statement that says this is not a bill. Sometimes you get a statement and you can't tell that it's a bill. And Sometimes, sometimes your bill changes if you wait another week. <laughs> or you ask and complain. Uh, I know a, a person uh, who uh, I have a personal relationship with this person and he um, he demonstrated that if you call and complain enough times they will just amend your bill. Um, brings and us back are... to
0: that question of time, though.
1: Yeah, that's right. Who has the time? <laughs>
0: yeah. Some people do. That's right. It's also so crazy to me thinking about, OK, so I'm a healthcare customer. But every time you go to the doctor, you don't get to see the price before you buy that care. So we're treated as customers in one way, but then completely not in the other. And that sort of dichotomy is just. It just messes with my brain how are we here how is
1: that the reality that we live right and patience when when I think about myself caring for somebody someone in my care is by definition um somewhat vulnerable uh they are uh, often in a place where they're not comfortable Um, they're often in a place where they don't have very much control they're in a hospital gown they're not in their regular clothing um, and there's a power imbalance in that. Um, and we have to be super respectful of that. And when you then insert with that power differential, I know more than you do. I don't have to tell you what I'm gonna charge you. I don't have to do anything until you pay me. I, I think that, uh, that, that power differential um, plays a role in the actual delivery of care. Um, and I understand that providers uh, should be paid Absolutely, and they should be paid for the work that they're doing. Absolutely, uh, but and we have, paid well.
0: Yes, absolutely. They're saving
1: lives every day, and it's awesome. Yep. But the uh, to insert that into a provider-patient relationship, and in some moment we're treating the patient as a customer, and then in the next moment we're treating them as our patient, um, is a flip in terms of relationship that I think is. Uh, undermines the relationship between a provider and a patient and um, can impact the care that people are getting. Since we launched, we've been getting stories
0: from folks either through email, through videos, or um, at some of the events that we've been hosting. Are there any that have been really stand out to you?
1: We heard a really good story, Haley, uh, from a nurse uh, when we did a a, a roundtable discussion in Woodbury. Um, a nurse who uh, cares for people, inpatient, mentally ill. And she said when the majority of the patients that she cares for, when they are admitted to the hospital, they spend more time worrying about how their care is going to be paid for than they spend getting better. That the how is this going to be paid for is an anxiety producer in the first place, and it carries all the way through their stay in the hospital. I think that makes people more sick. It is one of the reasons why we have to change. We just have to make change. This is not working. Mm -hmm.
0: We also heard a story from a woman who just after having a child um, had a major infection and was super sick, super high fever, like needed to be in the hospital immediately, kind of sick. And she told her husband, I need you to call an ambulance. And he had to pause. He had that moment of... What if we can't pay for that? Are you sure you need it? Just the idea that someone could look at their loved one and say, are you really that sick? Have that be part of the, the calculus that happens when you're deciding what to do to make sure that this new mom is going to be okay.
1: I have a very dear friend who uh, for years was an educator um, in high school, um, taught civics, loved his job. And he had uh, one of his children fall down the steps and cut open his head. And uh, his wife said we have to take him to the hospital for stitches. And the first thing out of his mouth was, do we really have to do it? Can we afford it? And it altered him in such a way that he left teaching and got a different job with Better Health Insurance because he never wanted to ask that question again. And he couldn't afford to raise three kids um, and be an educator in our public schools right now uh, and make sure that uh, his family had the care that they needed when they needed it. That's a loss. That is a loss for him. It's a loss for our public schools, for our kids. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a demonstration of what is wrong with what we're doing today.
0: It also, that really brings up an important point that when we talk about health care, we're not just talking about, I'm sick. I'm going to the doctor. I'm getting medicine. I'm going home. I'm getting better. Healthcare interacts with every piece of our lives. Transportation is a part of healthcare. The environment's a part of healthcare. The economy, obviously, is a part of healthcare. Schools. I mean, the the, the Saint Paul teachers are on strike right now or about to go on strike because, and and a lot of that um, argument that they're having or the negotiations they're having are over mental health of their students. So, you know when we think about healthcare providers too we normally think doctors nurses but teachers they're absolutely healthcare providers family members um you know your children taking care of parents parents taking care of children people shoveling the sidewalk for their sick neighbor all of those things are pieces of the healthcare conversation and i think when we're talking about bringing this back to people and making the debate about people that's what we're talking about is how how all of these issues with our system are rooted or can be brought back to the actual individuals that they affect.
1: And when you think about that in the way you described that Haley, which is really beautiful, um, people are doing their part. Um, they're doing their part in their communities with their family members. They are caring for their sick, sick relatives, their sick children. They're doing their part, um, but they don't have a care delivery system that is reliable, that they can trust in many cases. And that is not a knock against the providers who are doing their jobs. Um, they are my colleagues, uh, and I have a lot of faith in the, the doctors and the nurses, the pharmacists, the home care providers, the, the variety of healthcare care providers, but the system in which they're working isn't built for care delivery. And you can listen to all sorts of providers tell their own version of stories. And if we are going to reflect and serve the people of Minnesota, The system should be as powerful as our Minnesotans, um, and it should show as much caregiving as our Minnesotans. uh, And I believe we can accomplish that.
0: Um, We've talked a lot about affordability. We hear the word affordability in every single conversation about health care, I think, on the news, on the debate stage, in the paper, and just walking around. We're always talking about affordability. Um, I think one word that we need to talk a little bit more about is accountability. Um, I think in, when we look at the legislature now and the, the insulin bill, one of the major points of contention is how do we hold pharmaceutical companies accountable. But as we look to change the system, that means new laws, new regulations, um, what do you think it, the job of, the, of Minnesotans is to hold the people that make those decisions accountable? How, how best can someone hold a decision maker accountable?
1: I always want to remind people that we have a lot of power as um, the people of Minnesota, as the people who live here. Um, Our voices matter a lot with the people who are elected to represent us. And having served in the House for 12 years, I know uh, that it doesn't take very many calls or emails from the people in a district to move somebody. Um, And that's why it's important to tell a story. It's important to make a call or send an email. Uh, The work of the Minnesota House on the insulin issue includes holding the drug companies accountable for their part of this. And they, um, and anybody who has followed this story knows that the drug companies are making a lot of money off of insulin. Uh, insulin, a drug that was discovered and gifted to the pharmaceutical industry many, many decades ago. Um, and the prices skyrocketed. And it's because uh, the drug companies don't experience much of a regulatory frame anymore. They are, uh, they are at work to make money to sell a product, and especially when a product is in demand. And, of course, if you need insulin to keep yourself alive, it's a product in demand, um, the price goes up, um, and their job is to make money, and so they are. Uh, it's the work of public policymakers, both in the Congress and in the state legislatures, uh, to put a check on that uh, with uh, uh, regulatory mechanisms, and there's a lot of work that needs to happen uh, to ha- to make that real for the people of Minnesota, because insulin's not the only uh, drug that is skyrocketed out of control for people. We've, we continue to hear stories of medications and the price tags just make your eyes pop out of your head. How is anybody supposed to be able to afford that, the price that is affixed to a medication? Um, I do believe that uh, uh, this piece of legislation that is moving now through um, the House and the Senate and the legislature needs to include uh, some accountability from the drug companies. They should be participating in this solution. Uh, it is because their prices have gotten so high that Alec couldn't afford his medication. It is why he rationed the medication. It's why he lost his life. Uh, And I don't quite understand, um, other than uh, ultimate power, I don't understand why the pharmaceutical industry has not stepped up already to say, yep, that's right, we should be chipping in here. Um, It would make so much sense, and I think Minnesotans would applaud that, but instead they've been fighting tooth and nail uh, for a number of years now to, to... shift away from themselves any accountability for this. They point their fingers at the pharmaceutical, uh, excuse me, at the uh, pharmacy drug benefit managers and the insurance companies um, and casting blame on them. And there's blame there as well. But uh, they should step up uh, and they should take responsibility for what has happened and do their part to make sure that insulin is affordable for people. I mean,
0: the opioid problem issue is also I think just you know a mirror image of this one where it, how long has that battle been going on how, you know we realize that there's uh, a problem with overdoses in, in with from opioids and then it's taking you know now we're starting to see some legal movement on the pharmaceutical industry that was creating the problem that's right
1: uh, it is a symptom of uh, industry that is not regulated well enough um, and they're allowed to do that. And what happened around opioids is is a grotesque expression of a market-based system that um, is willing to make money at any cost.
0: There is another thing I think we talk a lot about in terms of accountability and superpowers. Um, and one of the things that I've always loved that Aaron says is that voting is our superpower, and it that is. is one way to hold people accountable. And um, you know, when I think we've all come off of Super Tuesday. We've got a little bit before we vote. Um, I think that that's one of the biggest things to remember when when you're walking into any sort of room where you get to decide who is going to represent you in the government, is thinking about not only the fact that these issues exist, thinking about those stories that you've heard from your neighbors and your family members and your friends, but actually thinking about those and Asking those people that are going to represent you, what are you going to do about this? How can I count on you to make sure that something like this doesn't happen to someone else I love?
1: Well, Voting is our superpower, and uh, uh, we can make change with it. I, I think uh, it's important to have a conversation with your elected official between now and November to let them know uh, that you expect more, uh, more to be done on this issue, more to make health care affordable, and available, and about us again, and not about the insurers and the hospital industry and the drug companies who are making a lot of money at the expense of people who need care. Uh, frankly, I'm I'm sick of waiting, and I think a lot of people are sick of waiting. And it's you know it's time to put some pressure on the policymakers, um, uh, both parties, right, to say get something done for us. It's not good enough to talk about a good plan and never put your muscle behind it. We we need progress for people and it's your job. It's why you're elected. And if you're not interested in doing it, then maybe you should step aside.
0: And in all the conversations we have with Minnesotans, we hear time and again that people care and that people want change and they want their family members to be healthy. It doesn't feel like it should be something that needs to be stated so explicitly, but we want our loved ones to be healthy, (laughs) to get the care that they need. That's right. So we're a little over a month into the 2020 legislative session. And we've obviously been paying very close attention to the issue of insulin affordability. The Alex Smith Insulin Affordability Act has passed in the House. And the Senate, and now we're going to see what happens with that in conference committee. Um, but what other what are some of the other things that we are paying attention to in this 2020 legislative session?
1: So we're we're um, a part of our stories. Our health is a part of a coalition that is um, speaking up about the potential closure of two hospitals in Saint Paul. Um, the hospitals are now part of a newly merged uh, system between Health East and Fairview and the University of Minnesota. Uh, and you know we see these mergers happen and uh, they do impact uh, where the care is delivered by whom people have to move around and change their plans uh, when those mergers happen Um, and we continue to continue to see that consolidation um, in the southeastern part of the state with Mayo up in the northern part of the state um, as well and we're seeing closures of hospitals uh, especially in rural parts of the state the reason why we are part of um, this coalition um, around two hospitals in St. Paul is because they are statewide assets um, St. Joseph's Hospital now um, has a, a hundred beds that care for uh, persistently ill uh, people with persistent mental illness who need inpatient hospitalization we are already underserved in that area um, and the potential closure of that many beds or a reduction would put continued strain on the care of people with mental illness in the state of Minnesota. Uh, we already know people are traveling all over the state and sometimes outside of the state to get the, the care that they need. We have a shortage of psychiatrists and psychologists and to shrink the number of beds um, is going gonna, is gonna to have a, a detrimental effect on people. Bethesda uh, has a number of specialties that care for people who need a longer stay in a hospital uh, for wound care or for a traumatic brain injury again serving people from different parts of the state for a kind of specialty nursing care uh, that will actually help people recover and go back home Um, in both places the the length of care the duration of care is outside of what we think about in a hospital It's expensive. It's not a profit center by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm worried that Fairview is making a decision for their bottom line and not a decision that uh, takes into account the care needs of people in the state of Minnesota. And what we often see, if you look at the years of changes that have been made in Minnesota, the people who are the most sick, the care that doesn't fit into an easy in-and-out admission and dismissal from a hospital, um, those conditions that are easily treated in clinics, the things that are really expensive often end up um, in the care of providers who are being paid through public programs. And sometimes I think we should just own that. We should just acknowledge that and recognize that a great deal of the health care that is being delivered that is expensive is already being managed by and cared for and paid for with public dollars and if we're doing that why aren't we considering the entire system in that so we are managing the care or have the capacity to pay for providers who are managing the care of people in their communities across the spectrum
0: all right so we've got insulin we've got hospital closures we've been talking about some folks with um, disabilities and how we're caring for folks with disabilities across the state. How's that maybe gonna come up in the legislature this session?
1: I am so grateful that the issue has been lifted up uh, because if you listen to Minnesotans dotted across the state, are people living uh, with disabilities or their family members are living with disabilities and the workforce shortage, the home care workforce shortage is significant and severe. And there are people who are living with a physical disability at home Uh, we met a woman whose son needs 24-hour care and they waited for more than a year um, to be able to get access to somebody um, who would who would come and work and care for their son that is not an uncommon experience Uh, so that creates a set of limitations for an individual or their family um, that puts pressure on their ability to live a full independent life it puts pressure on an ability to earn a living It puts pressure on relationships because so much of a life being lived is is dedicated to or obligated to caring for a person in their home. Um, We have a healthcare workforce shortage. People are underpaid. It is difficult, sometimes very rewarding work. Uh, There should be more training and it should be paid for by the state. There should be access to healthcare uh, for the people who are doing that work their wages should be increased because they are doing incredibly impersonal, difficult, physical work to care for a person. Um, So we can meet the the aspiration of our country, which is every person should be able to aspire to live um, a full and independent life. Cool.
0: Well, we'll be checking in on those things throughout the next couple of months and hopefully see some major progress. Um, thank you, Erin, for sitting down and chatting with us today about this organization and about the podcast. Um, before I let you go, one of the things that we're going to end every episode of this podcast with is asking, "What are some of the things that you want to see in our healthcare system? What is what is your hope for our healthcare system?"
1: I always hope for healthy people, um, and that means putting more emphasis on uh, the ways in which uh, we intervene quickly. Um, and early uh, so that we identify conditions before they get bad Uh, I would want you know people to have a relationship with um, their provider whether it's a physician or a nurse practitioner um, because especially in primary care um, that kind of a relationship is uh, in our research shows uh, uh, a dividend of health and I think health should be the outcome of our healthcare care system. Uh, I want to make sure that people aren't worried, right, that they're not afraid and uh, making a decision about not seeking care because they don't think they can afford it. Uh, that's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And for somebody who's sick, who delays their care, it often means not only a more difficult course of treatment but a more expensive course of treatment. So we're just digging ourselves further into a hole by working to slow people down and deny the care that they actually need. So... I would like to see a publicly funded system. I would like to see it uh, in the hands of the providers again, and not in the hands of the deniers and the insurance companies, um, who are, you know, counting the beans. Which I understand, you know, that's that's the thing, um, but it is uh, having an impact on the health and well-being of people. And I don't think we should pay for that anymore.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having we'll me. We'll talk to you soon. I look forward to it. Do you have a healthcare story that you want to share? Let us know. Send us a message on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at OurHealthMN. That's O-U-R-H-E-A-L-T-H-M-N. You can also get in touch with us through our website. Head to OurStoriesOurHealth.org and click on Contact Us.